Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. Join myself, Mooncat, and co. This week is myself. Hello. Who are you? What are you doing on here? Well, I don't. I think is I. I was debating about going by my real name for a change. Oh, we'll just we'll just just come out with it. George Grimwood. Hello. Okay, now this whole George Grimwood business, this is very confusing because now I don't know who I'm talking to and we know you by your moniker of DCT. Yes. Dr. Christian Troy. But I'm also known on Twitter as at Grimword as well. Okay. Well, if you wish to follow DCT slash Grimword slash George Grimwood, then you are at Grimword on Twitter. Yes? G-R-M-W-O-R-D, yes. Yes. Okay, so what have you been up to? Since we last spoke on the sitcom club, because I think the last time that we spoke on the sitcom club was about, I think it was a Christmas episode, wasn't it? We were playing on the buses. Oh yes, yes, and I, uh, I regret nothing. But you th- should. Well, I should, I should. I, I don't. Did I? How, what, what position did I come in? I can't even remember. It was. Did I win? No, I didn't win. I don't know that anybody won. No, I no, you didn't. No, you didn't win. It was a draw. It was a draw between Boggs and Ocho. Oh. And I'm still, I still need to saw that great comedy moments DVD in half and send them a half each. As a so, prize. so in a game of three people with the first two tying, I came second and last. <laughs> but to be fair, you were trying to play a forty-year-old board game that you'd never seen, and still couldn't see, with made-up questions and half of the rules junked over a Skype connection. So. I think that, well, actually, I'm saying that as if you were a disadvantage. You had exactly the same disadvantage as everybody else because we were all playing the game the same way. So, yeah, unfortunately, you came second. Well, that's all right. It's better than third (laughs) when there's only three people. You sort of did come third because there were three people playing. Yeah, but if they tied, then then I still beat the third place in theory. However, the other thing, though, in the world of sitcoms that I've certainly acquired, I mean, of course, the one thing that is the benefit I found of purchases post-Christmas is the sales, and I nabbed a low, low, the complete series, one foot in the grave, the complete series. Uh, what else did I get? And I have been getting to, uh, you know me, I like my American sitcoms as well, so I have been dabbling a bit in a few of those. But also, I purchased something only yesterday. Which was to, is debatable, isn't it? it? It's generally considered a drama, although it has got comedic elements, which is a very peculiar practice. I see. I would say that it is more drama, but yeah, I can understand that it, it's got its light-hearted elements and so on. Well, tell me about a very peculiar practice. Well, I haven't seen it yet. So I only just bought it yesterday, but... Well, tell, I, no, tell people about what you've been watching, because you, you did buy something recently, and you've been watching a lot of it, because there was a lot of it to watch. Ah, yes, an American sitcom, taking full advantage of Amazon.com's deal of the days, etc. And one of which was from something like $360 down to $99.99, was the complete, more or less the complete, but we'll get to that shortly, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, which stars Louise Lasser, I want to say. <laughs> Written by Norman Lear, but created by Norman Lear. Essentially, it's a parody of a soap, but it was written in such a way that those who wanted to take it seriously as a soap could enjoy it, but also people who got the humour of it and the parody of the soap as a whole and the cliches that that involves, it wrote for them as well and it worked for them. So it ended up lasting about 325 episodes, I want to say, before it became Forever Fernwood, set in the fictional town of Fernwood, when... Louise Lasser left the sitcom, and then it became Fernwood Tonight, and then it became America Tonight. Uh, those, th- the last three of which have not um, featured yet as a complete series on DVD. But Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, thirty-eight 
discs, ten on each, more or less, and with extras and whatnot. And it's great fun, very enjoyable. So I'm in the odd position of currently watching the spin-off, as you say, the second spin-off, Fairwood Tonight, which is Martin Mull and Fred Willard in a fictional late-night talk show. And you've met both individuals, have you not? I have indeed, yes. I've met Fred Willard and I have met the other one. Martin Mull. Fred Willard was very, very nice. I used the opportunity to ask him about DC Follies, which is Cinemati Croft's interpretation of Spitting Image in many respects. Very tame in comparison. And he was very, very sweet and very nice. And then Martin Mull, who I met on the set of the sitcom Dads, which is an interesting series. It's improved exponentially since the initial article came out damning it i must say it was it was better than what i expected although it was a very surreal audience experience it had all walks of life being subjected to doing impressions of farm animals for mobile phone covers that fox had left at the you know overstocked on and bearing in mind we were told we were put in the vip section the first thing the person who was allocating these these audience seats went we'll put you next to some attractive young women we're like okay like that's going to change anything we're not going to do anything we're going to sit here and watch a show. But no, the people they put us next to, it's like, well, this doesn't work because it's not like we're sitting in a circle anyway. <laughs> and we're sitting in an audience of a show we're going to have to be quiet for. So there's no logic. Oh, we'll come put you next to some girls, some goyles. But no, we, we went to the set, down to the set afterwards, and we um, met Martin Mull, he's a very, very nice man. And we were meant to be sort of hanging out a bit longer, but we kind of got misled in that respect and subsequently ended up just wandering around the Fox Studios after dark in Los Angeles, which was quite that adventure. That interesting. So you were given free reign, were you? We weren't given it, we just took it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this sounds like Jack and Victor in a distillery with their own private barrel and what have you. And if you've never seen that episode of Still Game, you've got no idea what I'm talking about. But yeah, no, I like this. I like this idea that, I mean, I'd like to be able to go on like a, a tour of somewhere like Fox Studios, but I'd be more interested if I could just wander around. We were tempted to take things. Um, oh, I should also clarify, Mary Hart and Mary Hartman was produced by Norman Lear, directed by Joan Darling and Jim Drake and starred Louise Lasser, with the writers being Gail Perrin and Anne Marcus. That's what I should point out. Not that I'm reading that off a screen, just to clarify. No, that's just suddenly came to my mind off the top of my head, syndicated from January 76 to May 77. Uh, however, Fox Studios, it was intriguing. They've got a big old fake New York in this Los Angeles set. And that was interesting to have a bit of a wonder about in After Dark. We could have just tried to hang out there as long as we wanted to, but we thought in theory we could get done to tre for trespassing and eventually people will leave and we'll be set upon by dogs. But, but no, because you've met Martin Mull. You've got the green light. He said, well, he didn't say it, but you sort of interpreted him shaking your hand and saying, nice to meet you, as, go on, guys, knock yourselves out. Just roam around. If there's anything you fancy, just pick it up and walk off of it. That would have been your sort of get-out clause. It would have been quite exciting to have hung out with Giovanni Ribisi, maybe, and we'll go, like, with him and his lady friends and go and get drunk in a club. But on the other hand... Just two grown men walking around a fake New York on an empty set in the middle of Los Angeles after dark because we'd been turned down by the producer who we were told initially was going to hang out with us and but um, went, well, here it is, and then walked off. <laughs> okay, now I've got a challenge for you. You just reminded me by your turn of phrase there. There is a fictitious sitcom starring 
Tim, Eric, and Zach Galifianakis called Just Free Boys. Now, your challenge for the next time that we speak on Sitcom Club is that you've got to devise the plot and overall setup of two grown men. That's the name of the show, and you've got to now devise that, work it out, produce it, write it, and get it made. I want at least 250 episodes. Well, I, I do kind of have a number of ideas coming to mind. If it was British, it would essentially be a follow-up to Mame Maving Badly, except without a laughter track. <laughs> no, this isn't going to be in any way sort of grim, is it? I mean, it's not going to be just like Gary just sat there on the couch, Dorothy's left him, and Tony and Debs have since got married and, and gone off somewhere, so it's just sort of him and his very prominent Stella Artois can just reminiscing about the old days. You've got the green light for the commission. I've explained the rules. What's it called? Two, two grown str- men. Two strapping men. Okay, well, well, off you go then. You get this written, and yeah, I want to see this on Lifetime Network. I don't want to see it on E4. I don't want to see it on ITV2. I want to see it on Lifetime Network, and I want to see it there in the next three months. I want to see it on Challenge TV. <laughs> Alongside a channel that, if anyone is listening, why isn't this a channel? Talk Show TV, where it's all classic talk show episodes. There already has been such a channel, but it wasn't classic talk shows. It was all new. You remember a channel on cable and satellite back in the day called Granada Plus. And that was the most successful of Granada's offerings. But at the time when they launched it, they had a whole suite of channels. At the same time they launched Men in Motors and they had one called Granada Breeze which I think was lifestyle programming like this morning and so on. And then they had one called Granada Talk TV and it was, the only thing I can remember of it, in fact the only clip I've ever seen of it because I didn't have access to it, is that Paul Ross was hosting a daily show and some clips from it made their way onto In Bed With Me Dinner with Bob Mills. And it just looked like basically Paul Ross gets the story out of the newspaper and says, what do you make of that? Ring us. And then there you are, and you're having a good old Barney. You're having a good old argument on the, the telly. The visual element wasn't really as strong as the audio. I mean, really, it was just a radio program on the TV. But So though there has already been an attempt to, to have a full-on talk show. Well, I'm, I'm thinking yeah. Parkinson, Harty, who else am I thinking? But also American, well, classic Carson, Letterman, 80s Letterman, Dick Cavett. I'd like to think sort of the midnight hour, you have shows that didn't last as long for numerous reasons, such as the Chevy Chase show. <laughs> Come on, you flick right, over no, at midnight. Okay, wait, no, no, okay. Now, I'm going to have to stop you there, because I was on the same page with you right up until you said that. And as a matter of fact, as I mentioned to yourself before we began the recording, over the last few days, I've had the chance to muck about with a full American cable TV package here from home in the UK and have a look at the presentation style of the different channels over there. And one thing I actually spotted was that Ocho had already tipped me off that Turner Classic Movies is much, much better in the States than it is here because here it's sort of like Sky Movies film for light. But in the States, it, it lives up to its billing and it's still TCN that it was always envisaged to be and has black and white films and films that you're not going to see anywhere else. And one thing I noticed on there is that they actually, in between the films, as, as filler, but still listed on the program guide so you can series link it, they have Johnny Carson interviews. Oh. So like for like 10 minutes, there's some talking to Jimmy Stewart or whoever, and then the next film comes on and so on and so on. But if that's your principal interest, you can just hit the record button and I'll just pick the whole lot of them up. I'd love to see TCM in the UK do that as well. We'll talk at some point about... I think we might actually... We could do a spin-off, one-off spin-off sitcom club and, and call it the, the Late Night Talk Show 
club and talk about how those kind of shows have never really firmly established themselves in the UK. I've got a nice little clipping from the Times in 1981 that talks about ITV paying quite a substantial amount to air some Johnny Carson shows on late night ITV and it's just not really working out. The British audience is not really receptive to it, not really understanding the people being referred to in the monologues and so on, and just overall just not really getting a handle on it in comparison to the type of talk shows that we have here, like Parkinson. Having said all of that, you're not seriously going to sell me on the idea that any channel anywhere on the planet is going to <laughs> get in contact with Fox and say, is the Chevy Chase show available for purchase and <laughs> syndication? You know what follows it, though? The Morton Downey Jr. show. You haven't? Have you heard? Have you seen? Uh, yeah, I'm. I am. I am aware of this chap. Yes. Yes. Now I'm. I'm saying that. Yeah, there should be this sort of guilty pleasure, or just, or just guilty. But essentially, classic stuff alongside some more obscure stuff. This week we are debuting an unusual format. This is something that we're going to do on occasion, and we're going to call it the time capsule. We are looking at three shows, all from the same year. None of these shows, I would say, would be well-known enough in order to sustain an entire full-on an hour, hour and a half podcast. But looking at all three of them together, we're trying to get an idea of the type of show, type of humour that was around at the time. And we've deliberately selected a show from one from BBC, one from ITV, one from Channel 4, just to get a feel of what was going on. And I suspect, I don't, I don't know if this will always be the case, but in this particular instance, we've gone with shows none of which are sort of headliners. So, for example, Birds of a Fellow began in 1989. We haven't chosen that, because if we talk about Birds of a Fellow, we talk about that in its own right. This particular collection of sitcoms, these are things which you might have seen, you might remember them, you might have caught them on a cable channel repeat or something like that, but chances are they may be names that are not known to you. But DCT, do you want to elaborate on... Because I have actually said to you that I want to discuss this one first... Uh, so if you could elaborate a little bit on the first of these shows, which is A Little Oddity from Channel 4. Uh, in honesty, no. This one I found very hard to watch. The most I can say for you, on a very, very broad level, 1989 lasted one series for seven episodes, I believe. It's written by Marks and Gran, and it is called Snakes and Ladders. It stars John Gordon Sinclair and Adrian Edmondson, and... Ugh, and I, I love Marks and Grant. I love the New Statesman and the other things they've done. But <laughs> off the top of my head. But Snakes and Ladders disagreed with me. And I know that it disagreed with you far more. We've deliberately seen episode one of each of the shows that we are discussing today. Just the same as any viewer would have done in 1989 to see if it held our interest, to see if we were interested in actually carrying on with the rest of the series. Yes. And I tried my hardest with Snakes and Ladders because it's an interesting premise but for the most part it's set in a future that is not too dissimilar to ours allegedly it's obsessed with the north and south divide which perhaps arguably in the current climate is more relevant I don't know but even then it's too detached from any reality that's familiar it's it tries to play on the Rupert Murdoch sky television element it tries to play on all these sorts of things and class divide and so forth and there's no laughter track it's not accessible I would say. So the basic premise is that 
the South is hugely affluent. I mean, this is we're talking about ten years of Thatcherism, and plus ten, so it's made nineteen ninety nine, set in nineteen ninety nine, and the South is supposed to be hugely affluent, and the North is a wasteland. And we've got two characters. One is Adrian Emerson, who is let's be honest, because they're not exactly masking it. He's supposed to be son of a big Australian media magnate who is Mordock and all but name, and John Gordon Sinclair, who is from a poor family in Scotland, and the two of them get mixed up, sort of trading places style, and then we follow their adventures from that point. That's the only time you'll ever find John Gordon Sinclair considered as an Eddie Murphy type. <laughs> Shall I see what I thought about this just now? <laughs> Please do, because okay. I, I don't have much to say about this particular one, because I tried to watch it. The other two, I can elaborate on this one. I just It baffled me, and not in a good way. Okay. Well, like yourself, there are some bits and pieces of Marx and Grant's work that I like, in particular, Goodnight Sweetheart, which I'm a huge fan of. And I don't think I'll ever tire of that show. There's just something about the premise, there's something about the people in it. I really, really enjoy it. Marx and Grant's habit of crowbarring in political references into otherwise non-political work I do find jarring and sometimes this I think I may actually have mentioned this on a show before but sometimes this comes back to bite them there is an episode in series one of Goodnight Sweetheart in which Gaddy hears this disc jockey asking people to phone in if they've ever had a like a sort of a bizarre experience, a sort of out of world experience, and he's going to phone in and tell the whole story about his time travel, and the way that the DJ describes it, this is in 1993. Remember, he says, "Have you ever had a bizarre out of body experience that you can't account for? Like you've gone into a voting booth and voted for John Major?" Absolute silence from the studio audience. Nothing you could hear a pin drop. You could hear a feller land on the floor. Things like that. I'm sort of thinking. Yeah, you sort of had that coming. You're, de- <laughs> you're determined you were going to get that in there. Because it's just not that kind of show. It's not the New Statesman. It's not a political show. Why bring politics into it? Now, okay. Now, I've got to bear in mind that this is a PG era, so I cannot swear, and I can't just go in here sort of bulldozer style. So I'm going to try and be as level-headed as I can. A couple of weeks ago, the first show when we came back, Ocho and I were discussing I being served. And Ocho asked the question, because it was a sort of elephant in the room, what about Mr. Humphreys? Is Mr. Humphreys an offensive caricature? And I answered, I can't answer that question. The question could only really be answered by a gay man as to whether Mr. Humphreys is an offensive stereotype. I gave the example of Russ Abbott as CU Jimmy and said, does that offend me? No, doesn't bother me at all. And it's an outrageous stereotype, as outrageous as it possibly could be, totally overblown, and no, it doesn't bother me in the slightest. This bothered me. This show did bother me. This show did offend me. To paraphrase, not so much paraphrase, but just outright misquote Blackadder, subtlety is just something that happens in a lot of people's sitcoms. There is no attempt at subtlety in this show at all. It begins as it means to go on, and legitimately I've seen more subtlety in children's BBC and children's ITV shows than we're on display here. We've got this depiction of everyone in the South looks like they've just stepped off the floor of the stock exchange, just dripping wealth, everything's wonderful, everybody's a slave to Murdoch vision. They don't even try and obliterate that title, it's it's actually written as such. And in Scotland it's a complete wasteland, 
Everybody looks and sounds like they should be on a shortbread tin. Nobody's got any money at all, and they're all having a big old party for John Gordon Sinclair because he's managed to get a job, the Holy Grail. And honestly, I just found this the most... Patronising is the best word that I can come up with it. Patronising offensive garbage. And there was no attempt to credit the audience with any intelligence. There's a scene when John Gordon Sinclair goes to work in the factory and the manager comes along and says, will you be joining the union? And John Gordon Sinclair says, oh yeah, 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 certainly. And the guy says, no, trade unions are bad, trade unions are wrong and so on. It's like, are you actually aiming this at an audience that doesn't understand what trade union is? I have heard of them. And... (laughs) Maybe I'm being overly sensitive. Maybe if this had been a depiction of, say, somebody from the northeast of England, then I wouldn't be taking it quite so personally. But really, I don't get offended by national stereotypes. I mean, I can watch Dance Army and not get annoyed at John Laurie, even though he's putting that accent because he didn't really talk with such a strong accent like that. He really is putting it on. It doesn't bother me in the slightest. I'm not concerned about that. If I see... I don't know, Arthur asking an old film done up in a kill, but it doesn't I mean, it didn't me at all. But there's something about this here, something about this this whole premise is like we're actually making a you know, we're actually making a political point here. We're actually making a really important social political point. It's not. It's just utter tripe. It really is. And I'm I'm sorry that I it's the, honestly this is the first show that I've seen when I've since we've been doing the, the podcast where I've really dislike something this intensely but yeah well firstly uh, i've got to point out i don't understand why it offended you because you're irish um (laughs) (laughs) but either way marks and grant am i right in saying they did do believe nothing i like believe yes they did i like believe nothing but that was slated at the time wasn't it that that is that's an oddity i like believe nothing and there are sort of similarities in its broad brushstrokes approach but I found that more sort of... Maybe it's the fact that it was a traditional sitcom with a studio audience that I I just sort of viewed that as more playing for laughs. I didn't feel as if there was any attempt to make any serious point behind that. Because I'm not adverse to satire. I'm not adverse to people actually wanting comedy to have a political message. That's, That's great. But just do it in a way that credits your audience with some intelligence. Now, I must ask this. Would you consider this perhaps one of the worst sitcoms you've seen? If not the worst sitcom you've seen? We consider it the worst sitcom, but I would certainly say that the overall characterization I'm even sort of hesitant to use that word, but the overall characterization and the whole sledgehammer to crack a nut approach, I would say is more in keeping with shows that I used to see on children's BBC. 25 years ago. Put it this way, that would not surprise me if you just sent me that and I had no other information about it and you just said, have a guess as to when this went out. I would have probably guessed, was this children's ITV or maybe it was like early evening on Channel 4 or something like that. I would never have believed that that was for an adult audience. Never. I wouldn't say it was the worst sitcom of all time. I don't actually know that there's really any series that you could definitively apply that tag to, but put it this way, I'm not going to be watching episodes 2 to 6. As a viewer, I would not be coming back for an appointment viewing. Well, with that in mind, I think it would be good that we hear back from the Twitter followers of Sitcom Club on on Twitter, not too surprisingly, to tell us what their 
what they consider to be the worst sitcom ever. Well, we are at The Sitcom Club on Twitter, and you can also email us, feedback at thesitcomclub.com. Let me ask you this, DCT. Will you be persevering with Snakes and Ladders? No, uh, because I don't understand <laughs> it at all. I like The New Statesman. I understand the liking of Goodnight Sweetheart. I'm not keen on this. I don't think it's one that I would willingly buy on DVD, even if it was released by the amazing network DVD people. But no, it's not my cup of tea. Let us switch channels. We're going to go to, as Richie would describe it in bottom, the light channel. We're going to go to ITV, and we are going to see the first episode of a new series featuring someone who appeared in, as far as shows with a narrative are concerned, somebody appeared in the most viewed UK show of all time. Anita Dobson, best known as Angie in EastEnders, playing opposite Leslie Grantham as Den. And she's since left EastEnders, and now she is in charge of this hairdressing salon in a show called Split Ends. Indeed, a sitcom that lasted one series in 1989, written by Len Richmond and directed by Alan J.W. Bell. I remember when we picked this out as part of our time capsule, I was... When, and I discovered the first episode, and, and I got into it, and I was appalled to discover that, well, the theme wasn't sung by Anita Dobson. I do remember messaging you on Skype and saying the theme will be sung by Anita Dobson. Unquestionable. There's no, no, there's not even the slightest doubt in my mind. How could it not be? Because, she, of course, she had that... I don't know how successful it was. I don't know if it was actually like a full-on number one, but she did have a commercial release of the theme to EastEnders. So I thought, well, of course she'll sing the theme music. That's, that's what I was saying. So it was, I wouldn't say a pleasant surprise, it was a relief, perhaps, to discover that she does sing at the end of the show. And the lyrics, it would seem, apply specifically to the context of that specific episode. I don't know if episode two is slightly different and so forth, but nevertheless, you have Anita Dobson singing at the end of the episode. And the thing is about this particular series it has its moments but it's soapy it's quite a soapy one there's only three scenes in the whole of the episode i mean it's done on the cheap two of the three scenes are in the salon and the middle scene is in a bar so it's sort of around the corner from the salon and you've got kind of these weird appearances from characters who are going into the salon to get their hair done you have mrs rapaport low voiced I may be married, but I'm not dead. Who flirts with Dave, who's meant to be the handsome one. And then... No, and then we, should, we should interject here, because I think, actually, in the first run of the sitcom club, we've had an inordinate amount of series featuring Peter Blake. For some reason, he kept on coming back again and again. And, of course, it's Peter Blake you're talking about there in that particular role, once again. Not the illustrator. I didn't know there was, but I'm showing my ignorance there. No, I mean, as in Peter Blake, as in featured in... Dear John as Ralph, and also in Agony, which of course was co-written by Len Richmond some ten years before this. I should clarify that Peter Blake, the illustrator, is the man behind the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's cover. Sergeant oh, Pepper. okay. So you have the character of Mrs. Rappaport flirting with Dave, Peter Blake's character, and then you have this very strange Open All Hours-esque character who doesn't belong in this sitcom called Mrs. Peabody, and, you know, everyone else sort of, you know, they got the 80s, big clothes and big hair. And she looked like she just wandered out of Arkwright's corner shop. And it's just very odd. And, it, you know, she's sort of about two steps away from being step toe, you know. 
well, I'll just be wasting an hour to get my hair done. And, you know, that kind of thing. It's slightly bizarre. Kath is in love with Dave, Peter Blake's character. And Dave basically encourages her to marry Clint because he doesn't want to lose their friendship. And then she, when she's embarrassed, she goes back to the salon. For reasons unexplained, she leaves underwear on the table. So Aretha, who has been seeing Dave on and off, starts getting a bit worried because Lee stirs the pot in the nasty, nasty character. This is written by people who have once again in a way thrown out these stereotypes I mean because Lee's meant to be the sort of cocky yobbish character and there he is he uses the phrase horizontal jogging but it's not so much that it's when he says I'm just using my common which is sort of meant to be short for common sense which there's nothing there <laughs> that's the kind of you abbreviate for cockney rhyming slang perhaps but this doesn't make it's one other word <laughs> there's no logic it's just really really lazy he couldn't. He couldn't even muster the breath for an extra word in the sentence. He just thought this will do. They'll know what I mean. But it's, no, it's certainly not Courtney Rhyming slang. Uh, exactly. It's there's no logic behind that. But then again, it also does bring us back to the fact that this is written in such a way. I mean, you have Kath's mum, who's a, who appears on the scene inexplicably and refers to having her hair done by that gayish boy. And then Kath at one point goes, "You know, oh, you know Americans, mum." You know, it, it's kind of all this, oh, we, you know, we're, we're all very twee, we're all of a certain class. There's the gays, and there's the hooligans, and there's the Americans. It's a little bit, hmm. It's watchable. I mean, but it doesn't know what it wants to be, I think. Well, as far as the the three shows that we saw are concerned, this is my favourite out of the, the three of them. And again, it's not something that I would have gone out of my way to see, but... As far as, yeah, just like a nice little pleasant half an hour is perfectly nice. And sometimes I'm just sort of attracted to the overall setup and the location and the people involved and so on. Rather than finding it aesthetically funny, it's just that it feels sort of warm. And yeah, I mean, okay, you've got slightly stereotyped characters and and references and so on, but it's not as overt as it would have been, say, if this had been 10 or 15 years earlier you could say that it's like a sitcom going through transition where the fact that one of the characters is gay is notable so it gets referenced whereas if you then sort of fast forward maybe about sort of 10-15 years then you then be presented with the same character and it would be stated that he's gay but you wouldn't have a line like that gayish boy it would just be as it is, because it no longer requires anyone to pass comment on it, so to speak. It was fine. It was sort of just undemanding and just a nice little half an hour. And I didn't really find any of the characters to be absurd. I didn't find anybody to be ridiculous. Sometimes you get Peter Blake, for example, he was not being sort of overbearing. He wasn't coming along and being a really stereotypical late 80s alpha male with hair slicked back and the sort of the daft sort of Gordon Gecko look and so on. He was more subtle than that. and More, more so than an American character, Clint. You know, sort of even the name. Just... Well, again, yeah, if that had been handled slightly differently and was a little bit broader, he'd come in there with a Stetson. He'd come in there like J.R. Ewing. But again, it's not turned up to 11. It's... You know, it, 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 it's it, very it safe middle ground. Yes, it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, it's middle ground tweeishness. It's middle class tweeishness. It's sort of like we're safe and we're cozy. And, and here are all the stereotypes that surround this coziness that are laughable, perhaps. 
So the $64,000 question is, are you inclined to see the remaining episodes of Split Ends? Only to see if Anita Dobson does any more singing at the end credits and different songs, I wonder. So it's not really necessary for you to see the entire episode, you just need to see the end credits for the remaining shows. If it goes the same way as the first one, where it basically reflects on the plot of the episode, then yeah, because it more or less just gives a summary. Okay, well... I'm sort of inclined to see maybe another episode, see how I get on with it. I, like I say, I quite enjoyed it. And yeah, I wouldn't say that it would be appointment viewing for me, but there's no harm in giving it an I'll go, I expect. Still waiting for series two. I don't think that's going to come anytime soon. But who knows? I hope it doesn't end in a cliffhanger, because then we've been left hanging for 25 years. Or even a Clint hanger. Ah! Now, we've had our fun and games on Channel 4 in italics, and we have enjoyed the light channel for the last half an hour, and now we're going to go over to the BBC2 service. Can you tell us a little bit about what we're going to be watching at 9pm? Speaking of cliffhangers, this is created by the Cliffhanger comedy team, which consisted of Tony House, Pete McCarthy, Robin Driscoll and Rebecca Stevens, and it's set in a police station and preceded The Thin Blue Line, but it's a little bit silly than The Thin Blue Line, I would say. It's enjoyable. People might know Tony Hass. I certainly know Tony Hass from the line, Give me a key! Which is from the day-to-day. He's the uh, swimmer who is not allowed his keys and then walks off rather boldly into the high street in just his swimming trunks. Sarge is Paul Brook, who's a long-time actor, long-term actor, if I'm not mistaken. Before this, he was a regular in the Kit Curran radio show. Which is one I hope we talk about. In I'm sure, yes, I'm sure, I'm sure we will. It's... I think it's quite underrated, and it's also, unfortunately, one that's just been sort of forgotten about. This is episode one, The New Constable, which has a few familiar traits. Ones which are in relation to previous sitcoms that we've spoken about on here. Well, the first one that comes to mind is Chalk. Now, why, you may ask, or not, but it's because they use that of a dead character to up the chaos. They also have a new character coming into this chaos being introduced to this world and this world is particularly surreal i mean it's it has some good gags in it it's it i mean more or less opens with the line there's a tree stuck up my cat but along the way you get things like can i have a word and then he just throws out a particular word and teaching aids uh, is in reference to uh, not so much something that will aid your teaching but instead teaching people about safe sex and so forth and there's all these little kind of and, and of course new constable which relates to the artist constable and, and things like that. There's sort of just certain um, plays on words that are used throughout. And I'm not saying it's they're solid gags. Put it this way, it was refreshing after split ends and snakes and ladders. Yeah, I wasn't entirely sure what to make of this, to be honest. Because I, I know what you mean about how there's a lot of silly little gags in there. And little puns and so on. And they're sort of sitting uneasily with the rest of the activity. I don't know the writing method behind this in terms of the players of the cliffhanger group but it does seem as if you've possibly got sort of different styles trying all to sort of mesh in this show in the same way that you had in the young ones for example where when you watch back those shows you can sort of tell which bits are ben elton's which bits are lise mayer's which bits are rick mail's and I suspect that if you were to watch this for long enough, then eventually you start to see, I think this is a Tony Hass, but this bit's a Robin Driscoll bit and so on. I don't know, it sort of leaves me feeling as if it's not quite sure what it wants to be. 
yes, it was clunky in parts. It was a bit uncertain as to what kind of comedy it wanted to be. I think maybe I'm putting it in perspective of the other two, which is probably beneficial for for Morning Sarge, I would say. But at the same time, I think uh, having a more structured environment to work in, I mean, I think, look at Snakes and Ladders, that was no structure at all because it's trying to say a lot in a lot of locations and a lot of situations and it's just a mess. Whereas Split Ends is perhaps too stable. It's, I mean, as I said previously, it's just too locations in the whole episode whereas in this because of the setting and because there's a ranking system and because they're all odds and sods characters interacting with the public that are just as unsettled as them i think it had more of an extreme element to it than that of split ends where it was a few daft customers getting their hair cut flirting with peter blake and so forth not the illustrator but at least with Morning Sarge, you've you've kind of got this slight mania to it, which I I found more relatable in terms of in relation to say Chalk and, and other sitcoms. That it, it had a had a more stable sitcom vibe about it, whereas Split Ends was veering on soap. See, I'd actually slightly disagree with that. As far as Split Ends is concerned, whether or not it appeals to you, I think it's quite confident in what it's trying to do and what it's trying to be. I don't get the sense. I mean, obviously, Split Ends has got one writer. So it's one person's vision. So I don't get any sense in there that, yeah, I know what you mean about there's a soap opera element, and that would be sensible given that with Anita Dobson as the main player, there's going to be a certain cross section of people watching herself and this who've previously seen her on EastEnders. So that makes sense that you're going to have that kind of continuing narrative throughout it. But as far as Morning Star is just as, as its own entity, I do get the impression that we're sort of looking at. I suppose you could say like a sitcom, not by committee as such, but it definitely feels like a joint effort and one which eventually, perhaps over the course of the series, is going to find which direction it prefers to veer in. Because at the moment it does sort of feel as if it's trying to be all things to everyone. Not to veer too off the topic of Morning Sarge, but out of these three sitcoms that we've watched, or should I say three sitcom first episodes which would you say is the most successful in saying what it wants to say i suppose just because it is repeatedly cautioning you over the head with it then i would say snakes and ladders because you only need to see that for i'd say about two minutes to be completely clued in as to what their message is and what their intention is as far as split ends is concerned i don't really think that it's necessarily a comedy with a message per se. It is a straightforward romantic story, one woman, two men vying for her affections and so on. It's quite straightforward and that's established within the first half of the first episode. As far as Morning Sarge is concerned, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. There's bits and pieces of Morning Sarge that strike me as if they could just as easily be in a pre-Watershed BBC One sitcom, and there's other bits quite clearly made for a BBC Two 9pm slot. Morning Sarge amused me, but I didn't quite get a grasp on it. I wasn't quite sure. If there's a message behind it, I wasn't quite sure what it was. I think I agree with you. I think I would say that Snakes and Ladders was essentially message or statement driven, 
Split Ends is story-driven, and then you have Morning Sarge, which is character-driven, relying on the strength of the variation of characters, which I think is more or less kind of three different types of drive that reflect various different sitcoms. I mean, just to throw one out there, I would say One Foot in the Grave is a perfect balance of story and character driven because it's absurdity but it's the character's reaction to the absurdity that makes that absurdity work a lower low it's that's character driven i would say more so but because the environment it's in is based in a in a certain reality that is empathetic relatable and indeed has a basis in actual history to a point but it's a farcical type of approach to to that particular history so it's yeah it's it's a variation and I I mean I'm trying to think of other statement sitcoms I'm trying to think of other statement sitcoms that have done it well I suppose statement sitcoms are ones that risk being dated it's I mean I suppose I can't think of a sitcom that works that is a statement sitcom that is not dated well there is the argument that nothing dates faster than not just a sitcom but really any narrative any comedy or any drama that's set in the future unless it's so ridiculously far in the future, like Red Dwarf, for example, where we're talking about it just basically being out of sight. But if it's supposed to be five years, 10 years, 25 years into the future, whatever it may be, then before you know it, it's going to look ridiculously dated. Whereas if you said something in the past, then perhaps it's more secure then. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree with that. And I think if it's 10 or 20 years in the future, then essentially it's just using the future as an excuse to reflect on what the situation is now. As exactly. In, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Whereas Red Dwarf, for example, so far ahead in the future, that's a perfect blend because you've got characters who are empathetic or indeed relatable in some capacity. You've got the, the uptight character, the slob, the cool one. I don't know, I don't know how you'd mark Crichton. Crichton's the one walking in on this, trying to make sense of it, I suppose. Yes, I would say so. Crichton is, again, he's sort of our guy, because purely because of the way that he speaks, because he is a... The logical one. Yeah, exactly. Because he's a mechanoid, then he will spell things out in a way that he can do it without it coming across as clunky dialogue. He doesn't have to say that classic sitcom phrase, as you know. He's able just to explain what's going on so that the rest of us are clued in then. Yeah, so Red Dwarf works. I think it's when you get the blend right, and I think with that, it's great because you've got characters that are relatable in a world that is unrelatable, trying to make sense of it as much as we are. Now, our guy in Morning Sarge is the much-missed Pete McCarthy. He is the new constable. He comes in there day one, and of course, he is sort of our conduit. He's the guy who's then going to ask the questions and get the answers back so we know what's going on. Because otherwise, if you don't have that guy in there and it's all just people who are already there, then you sort of wonder, why are they talking in this funny way? I mean, it's 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 such a, a standard approach for a new sitcom, but it's one that just happens again and again. Think back to the first episode of, say, Rising Damp, and you've got Philip arriving and therefore... Philip needs to meet Rigsby and needs to meet Alan and so on. And yeah, I think it actually that, that element I think works quite well in Morning Sarge because it's not it's not that you've got some sort of convoluted situation. It's not like they're saying it's not like our pair of eyes in there are the woman whose cat stuck up a tree, for example, because eventually 
she'd have to keep on asking so many questions and you'd think, well, you know, why are you so interested in <laughs> walking to the police station? You only came in to collect your cat from the tree. Whereas Pete McCarthy has a reason to ask all those questions and he's going to be there from then on. So therefore it doesn't look clunky. And also it's that sense of, I mean, there's a point where I believe it's the same character who has the cat up the, or the tree up the cat even, who, uh, and they just turn around and go, shut up, madam. And I think that reflects perhaps the element of authority not connecting to the public, much like Green Wing, perhaps, how that's a sitcom set in a hospital, but you never interact with the patients. And also it reveals details about the characters themselves because you could argue that it shouldn't be the case, but invariably is. How the desk sergeant speaks to the constable is going to be different to how he then speaks to a member of the public with a query. Because you've got both sets of people in there, you're getting to see two sides of the desk sergeant's personality. Yeah. When you get a, a medley of characters, essentially it should be the sum of all parts that make sense to the viewer. Like we're saying with Red Dwarf, a part of you that's uptight, a part of you that's lazy, a part of you that confident which they even have a whole episode more or less dedicated to when but that's you know that's a whole other sitcom for a whole other that's some um, confidence and paranoia isn't it confidence and paranoia and also the one where rimmer is faced to confront all his ver- all the different versions of himself uh, when they venture into his mind if i'm not mistaken i think that's a good formula for a comedy medley, a group of characters together that are of one world facing outwards where you have them representing different parts of one person, one average person. I am intrigued to see more episodes of Morning Sarge. I'm actually more interested, given that it's one which doesn't have a narrative running through all the episodes, I'm actually more intrigued to see perhaps, say, episode four next and see how it's developed over the course of a few weeks and see if it's got perhaps a single voice or a single style rather than the way it appears in the first episode. To see if it's found its way, yes. I think, in comparison to Snakes and Ladders, which essentially is one story over, I believe, seven episodes. I could be wrong, I'll double-check that. But I believe it's over seven episodes, and it's one story. It's not dipping in and out of different plots. It's just one story. Split Ends is could have gone on for years uh, with if if it wasn't focused primarily on the A-plot of, of a love triangle. Uh, whereas Morning Sarge, as you say, if, if it found its voice by that point, it could have potentially continued on. Even though if you look at the likes of two series BBC sitcoms, such as Chalk and Perfect World, it tried to take a very slightly different approach by its second series. But by then it was too late to reintroduce the characters, perhaps, which is why arguably it, it didn't. they didn't go into a third series. All three of the programmes we've spoken about today actually only were one series. I actually quite enjoyed the fact that we've looked at three shows which are entirely self-contained within 1989. And also, it's good to remember that, of course, and this will indeed date our podcast this episode, but it was this week gone that Birds of a Feather was recommissioned on ITV 25 years later. And so it just goes to show that an audience will be devout if the formula works for them, more or less. And... Then you look at those three that we, we've we watched and they just didn't stick at the time. I mean, I, I would wonder if any of those sitcoms would work today if, if reapproached. Obviously not with the same jokes, obviously if they bought it to date. 
which of those three that we watched would work the best? I, I would personally say Split Ends because it's it's you have salons today and you 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 have love, love triangles today, and that, I think that's probably why. But by playing it so safe, it is easy enough to set at any time. Yes, I agree. I think Snakes and Ladders is what it is, and it is a pastiche of 1989 politics set in the future. I suppose you could say that it's got bits and pieces which are still relevant today, but it is what it is. Morning Sarge. I think Morning Sarge stands up pretty well 25 years later. I think that there'll be elements where if you were going to make that today, there are elements that you would build into it. I mean, almost certainly if they did it today, you'd have from the first five minutes references to social media and what have you sort of crowbarred in. But it's largely about the interplay between the colleagues and that still stands up today just the same as are you being served isn't a completely alien situation 30 years or 40 years later it's about the dialogue between the different people and the hierarchy of the workplace and so on split ends yeah absolutely agree it's an old-fashioned love story and of course yeah it works just as well today as it did then we will be returning to this format in a few weeks' time. We're going to choose a year. If anybody has got any suggestions for a year that they'd like us to cover, we tend, in this particular format, we tend to go for the more obscure shows. We've got a couple of years in mind to consider for future episodes, but if it's a particular year that you'd like us to consider, then either tweet us at the Sitcom Club or email us feedback at sitcomclub.com. Sitcomclub.com is also where you can find a link to all of the previous episodes, which is over 30, about 32 or 33 episodes now, in the archive going all the way back to April. Next week, I will be going back to 1981, the company of Ocho, and we will be looking at two shows from the soon-to-depart Southern Television, namely That Bell Marston and Take a Letter Mr. Jones. In the meantime, DCT slash George slash Grimward. Thank you for your company today. No worries. Thank you very much. And I will be looking forward to the next capsule that we that we enter. I have a couple in mind, so we will... Uh, I'll have a look. I'll have a peruse to see what weird and wonderful things I can find. Yes. Channel 4 is always good for that kind of stuff. Indeed. Although it does uh, mean the year will be 1982 onwards. That's true. In the meantime, thank you very much indeed to yourself for listening, and we'll be back soon on the Sitcom Club. <laughs>